I've been talking about Christianity <clears throat> over the last month or so and uh, taken a slightly different angle to it. I know it's Pentecost Sunday today. Somebody reminded me of that as they came in this morning. I'm not talking about Pentecost today. I'm wrapping up this series of talks on, on Christianity this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this. It, it, some of what I've spoken about has been quite challenging, even for me. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm almost perfect, but I'm not a perfect, perfect person. But 99.9%, uh, no, I'm joking. But I, 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 like you, I struggle with a lot of aspects of what's written in in, in this book, this, this inspired word of God. And, and I, I, when it comes to the application of that in my life, I, I sometimes struggle even with what I have to talk about. And so even last week when I spoke, I found it quite difficult actually speaking about uh, eternal judgment, speaking about the fact that every one of us one day is going to give an account of, of who we are in our lives before, before God when we come before his throne. So um, yeah, but, it's, but I've enjoyed it. And today what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to talk about the exhilarating vision. It's, it is an exhilarating vision. We have a vision that has been given to us. Uh, we have been given a vision by, by Jesus himself. Uh, when, when we get invited into the kingdom, there is a vision for the kingdom. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the vision of the kingdom. It is an exhilarating vision. Um, <clears throat> some of what I say this morning might be a little difficult for you. If you have to, you're welcome to leave, but you, I pray that you stay till the end and see it through. Okay, so vision is important, isn't it? It's not a trick question. It is important. Uh, humans are, by nature, driven towards goals, right? We're very goal-oriented, and... and um, we as human beings want to achieve something with our lives and, 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 and for our families and in our circumstances. We, we have a destination in mind. And so we, we want to get somewhere. You know, if you want to learn more, if you want more knowledge and skills, these days you can just download an app to your phone and, and, and you've got all this stuff at your finger, fingertips which can help you grow in, in different areas. Um, I, I I'm, not, I'm not a video game player, but I know that some people get hooked on video games and the reason why they get hooked on these things is because they just want to get to the next level, right? Just got to get to the next level here. And, then, and the way they, these games are made is that the, the, the levels are all, they become more difficult, don't they? But, but there's this drive, I just got to get to the next level. And so some people spend the entire night in front of a screen playing the game and by five o'clock in the morning, you need to give them some kind of anxiety medication. But, but that's, that's the nature of humanity. We just want to pursue. You know, at the start of New Year, what do we do at the start of New Year? Most, most of us comes, the clock strikes 12 and the old anxiety, and we got all the New Year's resolutions. And normally those resolutions are about improving our lives, right? It's about improving ourselves. We have teachers and, and we have instructors and we have coaches who help students um, master a, a field of, of knowledge or learn a new language or pick up a musical instrument and teach them how to play it um, or, or grow in their athletic ability. And so we're always in pursuit of something. I often say to my sons, uh, Adam and Jude, I say to them, I say, be ambitious for yourself. Because sometimes I get a bit worried. And I say, come on, be ambitious for yourself. Set yourself a go, go a goal, go for it, right? So be ambitious for yourself. And, and generally what we do is we, we look with pity sometimes on people who kind of settle into a state of indifference, you know, when it comes to the betterment of their lives. 
you know, when there's no longer any desire to grow in any way, no longer to grow in their char- you know, any desire to grow in their character, or or to try out something new, or to go somewhere new, you know, a new hobby or a new destination. You know, sometimes even when it just comes to keeping your home tidy or your or your yard, you know, just cutting the grass, it's it's sad sometimes to see a person lose their sense of purpose and abandon their ambition. And we might ask why, you know, why is that kind of sad? And and I guess it's because we recognise that humanity is at its best when it's pressing towards a goal, when it's pressing forward, moving forward towards a goal. It feels like something's wrong when somebody no longer cares about their, their destination. And any worthwhile goal, right? Any, any, anything that you're pursuing requires devotion, doesn't it? It requires effort. If you're going to learn a new language, you're going to have to put something into it. If you want to get a degree in some area, you know, earning that degree means you're going to have to work. You're going to have to study. If you're going to run a marathon, you're going to have to train for that marathon. And so there, there are demands. If we want to see success and, and transform our minds and our bodies, we've got to be devoted to uh, a vision of our future self. That's the picture. We've got a goal in mind. We've got a vision. And that's what I'm pressing forward to. So we, we pursue that vision for, for our lives. Now, it's a, it's a similar thing with Christianity. On the other side of the cross. <laughs> and I, and I, I say that deliberately because uh, on this side of the cross, if you are a non-believer... There's no way that you, can, that you can save yourself. So I've got a little diagram over here of a, of a non-believer and a believer and a cross in, in the middle. Uh, there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. It is Jesus, through his work on the cross, that saves us. So there's nothing that we can do. And, and our hope and our prayer is that every non-believer becomes an inquirer. Right? Paul in, in 1 Corinthians speaks about people who are inquirers. He says, as a community of God, you need to be open to those who are making inquiry. Right? So our hope and our prayer is that a non-believer will become an inquirer and begin to examine the evidence of this message and use its credibility to make a faith decision and to put their trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. But once a person has made that decision, then has surrendered their life to Christ and say, I'm crossing this line of faith, man. Based on the evidence, I think this is a good decision for my life. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. So I have made that decision. Once you've made that decision, (laughs) I say this often, you're going to have a lot of say in how much of the activity of God is going to take place in your life. You've got a lot of sway in that area. And so we become a big part of the ongoing work of salvation in our lives. And so it's true that on the other side of the cross, the Christian life requires effort. It requires discipline. The New Testament describes this journey as a race of faith. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So I think we could pretty much all agree this morning that for me to make 
progress in the present is going to require that I've got some kind of picture in mind up ahead. I've got some kind of vision in mind. So future vision matters for present progress. Future vision matters for present progress. But here's something I find quite strange. We live in a world where we're told that we can do anything we put our minds to, don't we? We live in that kind of culture. Come on, you can do it. You can achieve this. You, you, you know, don't give up. Come on, go for it. That's the kind of world we live in. We're told that we can do absolutely anything if we put our minds to it. But the moment that we encounter the moral vision of Christianity, a lot of people go, put the handbrake. And shrink back. I mean, in all areas of life, you know, we, we, we honor the effort that it takes to keep, to keep going, right? To, to maintain a focus on that goal. We're like, yeah, we support people. You can do this. Keep that goal in mind. Just press ahead. But all too often when it comes to Christianity, it seems that the opposite is the case. We read the teachings of Jesus and we say to ourselves, I don't know if I can do that. That's unattainable. The expectation of the apostles who wrote some of these books in the New Testament, we find we read them and we go, man, that's outdated. We read the moral requirements that Jesus laid out and we go, that's impossible. And there are a lot of voices around and even in the church today who say it would be better if we do away with some of these demands because these requirements are just too much. And so rather than holding on and sticking to the path that Jesus has set before us, we, we prefer to kind of relax the standards and, and change the goal. This is a community of God. And uh, what we want to happen in our, in our space is for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. But I don't want you to come into a place of condemnation, okay? So I'm going to say some stuff now that um, some of you might find difficult. <clears throat> I think that the most obvious case of this phenomenon of going, this is too hard, the most obvious case is when it comes to the sexual ethic of Christianity. The moral vision of sex is, is grounded in God's design, right? That sex is good. God came up with sex. He was the one who made, a, made it. It's is a good thing. But when we read this, we understand that sex is only good within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the standard. Now, in today's environment... Christianity's teaching about sex for a lot of people seems backward, right? For many, the idea that we should remain sexually abstinent before marriage is, is impossible. That's just impossible. I can't do that. And it's quite ironic because when you look at so many people around us in the culture, we're pushing our kids, man. Come on, we're telling people, you can do this. We push our kids to develop musical skills, you know, to strive for academic success or athletic ability. 
You know, stop eating all of that junk food and drinking those fizzy drinks. I mean, you can do this. You know, I mean, parents tell their kids that there's no limit to what they can be and no limit to what they can do if they committed and they work hard to achieve their goals. Until it comes to sex. And suddenly, all talk of self-control and self-discipline falls away. Because we, we go, I, I, I can't, you can't expect me to tell my child not to have sex before they're married? How can, how, how can you expect me to tell them to do that? You know, young people can't wait to have sex before they get married. I mean, isn't it, be, just, isn't it just better to ensure that, that, that we tell them about sex and that, 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 that they make sure that it's safe? We can't expect young people not to embrace the party life, so let's just tell them how much alcohol they can actually hold and what does and what does not constitute consent. We can't expect young people to resist and reject pornography, so let's just, let's just make sure that, that what they're looking at is, is ethically sourced. Yeah. It's quite strange how we can tell our children that they can be anything, that they can do anything that, that they set their minds to, except when it comes to purity. And so because a vision that gives purpose and meaning to sexuality is disregarded, our society has descended into more and more sexual chaos. And in the name of progress, the church is being told to let go of what Scripture teaches and join the rest of the world in the in the immoral mess. But it's not just about sex. There are a whole lot of other areas where we shrink back from the brightness of Christianity's moral vision. Let me pick on another one. <clears throat> Anybody comfortable? Just think for a moment about um, the New Testament's emphasis on generosity. Let's just talk about money for a few moments. Because the culture that we live in is incessant in its, in its consumerist mindset, right? And so a lot of the people around us, and maybe even some of us, we define our lives, we define ourselves by what we have, by, by our standing, right? By the abundance of our possessions, by the kind of car that we drive, you know, the prestige of our dress. Well, I live in the right area, or, you know, you don't live in the right area. You know, the number of investment properties, the, the size of our share portfolio. And that's how we define our lives, because that's what we look to, because that gives us some kind of significance, some kind of achievement. And it's the very lie that Jesus exposed when he had a conversation with a man who had an inheritance dispute with his brother. Let's, let's just read this passage here in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is talking to a crowd, and, and someone from the crowd says to Jesus, says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide um, the inheritance with me. Right? Rabbi, Rabbi, i got a problem here. The inheritance is, is not being divided. I'm missing out. Can you just tell my brother to divide the inheritance? And Jesus, you know, I love Jesus. He says, friend, friend, says to him, says, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? And, and then uh, Jesus says this to him. He says, watch out and be on guard against all greed. 
Because a person's life is not in the abundance of their possessions. And then in typical Jesus fashion, he goes on to tell a story, <laughs> tells a parable. And he says, there was a rich man, and uh, he had this land. And this land was very productive, right? He says, this man, had, 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 he had an industrious operation going. It was productive. It was, it was making a lot of money. There was, there, was, there was some good stuff going on over here. And this guy who had all of this wealth said to himself, well, I don't have enough space to store all of all of, all of these uh, crops, you know, all of these goods of mine. I don't have enough space. And he says, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my storage facilities. I'm going to tear down the barns and I'll, I'll build bigger ones so that I can store my grain and I, I can store all of my goods over there. And then I'll be able to say, to say to myself, I have many goods stored up for many years, right? In other words, I'm, okay, I'm good. I'm I'm secure. Right? I've got enough. I've got enough. I'm, 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 I'm happy now. And I, there's enough in my bank account. There's, there's enough provision over there. So much so that, that I can take it easy now. <laughs> Eat, drink, and be merry. Whoa. Don't worry about it. I, I'm, I'm good. Right? And then Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose are they going to be? And then Jesus ends the parable with this line. He says, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, for many of us, these words of Jesus and the words of the apostles, where they lay out an alternative view of worldly wealth, we kind of get shocked by that. It shocks our sensibilities. Just as some Christians believe that the church should bless whatever sexual choices people want to make, other Christians believe that the church should bless all attempts of a person to gather wealth and hold on to wealth and become a really rich person. And, and, and that actually stems partly the church is responsible over here because there are parts of the church that have taught a prosperity gospel. And, and a prosperity gospel is not about this church. This church is about the truth of Scripture and interpreting the Scripture in the right way. But I've been with a, in, in, a, in the midst of a lot of churches who will tell you, come on, come on, come on, God's going to do it for you. God's going to open that door and it's all about you. And so the, so the reason why they serve God is so that so the, the, um, the motivator there is for the financial side of things. In fact, some people believe that if they go to church and they seek to live a good moral life, then it's like God's going to uphold his end of the bargain and he's going to bless them with financial prosperity. But that kind of thinking is opposite to what the Bible teaches. When you get into Scripture, you begin to see that the teaching of Scripture when it comes to finances and money is one of self-sacrifice, is one of generosity, and is one of caring for those who have less caring for the poor. And you might be saying, well, Andrew, where are you getting all this from? Let me tell you, both of these areas of sexuality and finances are given attention to by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you read Matthew chapter 5 and, and chapter 6 and chapter 7, you'll find Jesus going even further on the actions and, and the attitudes that are, that are associated with the kingdom of God. Jesus goes way further from, from, the, from the Beatitudes to the command to love our enemies 
and not to worry about our lives and to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. The moral vision of Jesus for many, many people presents almost too much to take in. We read it and we go, I don't know. We read it and we go, it's uncomfortable. Are you serious? Did Jesus really mean what he said? Surely this is only going to apply to people like Andrew. He's a super Christian. It's only for him, man. That's why he's the pastor. Not for me. You know, this thing that Jesus, all this stuff that Jesus said, that's just a way of showing me that I'm a sinner, man. There's no ways I'll ever be able to measure up. I'm so dependent on the mercy of God. Oh, God, have mercy on me. It's, it, it's quite surprising how Christians have looked at ways to get around the vision that Jesus has given. It's surprising to me how many Christians have tried to mute and, and tame and even domesticate the teaching of Jesus. But I'm going to tell you that it's very, very clear from his words that this is the way of truth and this is the way of life for his followers. For anyone who's made that choice to believe and is following Jesus, this is the way of truth and life. And, and, and I'll also tell you that we're not the first generation to be startled by Jesus. You and I are not the first ones to go, what? That's in the Bible? You serious? You want me to live that way? We're not the first ones to be like, it's been this way since the very beginning. You see people, when you read the Gospels, you see that people frequently got really, really astonished and amazed at the teachings of Jesus. And even like put out, like my nose is out of joint, but I'm never coming back to one of your rallies. Call yourself a rabbi. That, that was the deal, Right? And so they were surprised, they were amazed, not only with the authority that Jesus gave when he, when, he, when he spoke these things, but at the audacity of Jesus. Who, how dare you? Who are you? To, 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 to place such high moral demands on, on people, who are you? When a man comes to Jesus one time and he asks him, he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus Again, in Jesus, t- typical Jesus fashion, he, he just throws the question back at him. <laughs> the guy's going, what do I need to do, Rabbi, to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus kind of says, well, well, what do you think you need to do? And then the guy thinks and he goes, oh, well, you know, and his answer is around the, the, the two great commandments. He says, well, I guess I'm going to have to love God and love my neighbor. Yeah, I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor. And, and, and Jesus goes, yeah, good answer, good answer. But then this man tries to justify himself and he asks a follow-up question. He's like, nah. He's, he's like, he says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And the reason why he asks the question is not because of his love for his neighbor. The reason why he asks the question is not because of his desire to obey the command. The reason why he's asking this question is it's because he's, he's attempting to shrink the choices, Right? He's attempting to narrow who this neighbor love thing should be applied to. And again, in typical Jesus fashion, (laughs) rather than respond directly, he tells another story. And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when he tells that story, you see that it's a story that flips the question around so that the key uh, is to be a neighbor to anyone who is in need. Who's my neighbor? Your your neighbor is anyone who is in need, regardless of their background or their status or their ethnicity or even their religious belief. That's your neighbor. And so the moral vision that Jesus gives here is is, is like, 
is way more demanding than this guy questioning Jesus realized. He thought he was going to catch Jesus out. And then he realizes, whoa. And you know, even the, even the disciples were challenged with this vision of the kingdom. Peter asks Jesus one time, and he says, he says, he says Rabbi, how many, how many times should I for, forgive someone you know, who's, who's sinned against me? How many times? And Peter's like, you know, you know Peter. He was an impetuous disciple. And, and, uh, and, and so he throws out a number. He thinks he's being generous. Seven times? How many times? Is that? Seven times? And, and Jesus says, uh, no, try 70 times seven. And when Jesus gives that answer, he was saying that in the kingdom, this vision of the kingdom is that there's no limit to the forgiveness that Christians should offer. There's no limit. And so what Jesus was saying is the point is that you don't keep track here of how many times somebody's wronged you, right? Greg, you're on your 490th time. I'm telling you, on the 491st time, then I can get you because I've forgiven you 490. That's not the, that's not, that's not the point over here. Jesus lays out a moral vision here that stuns Peter. Peter's like, seriously, I've just got to be a forgiving person? On other occasions, the disciples just flinched. They just they, at the at the blazing standard of purity that Jesus that when he when he spoke and when he taught, they were just like, "How can how can this be?" And Jesus speaks about God's original design in creation when it comes to marriage, and 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 he speaks about God's hard line on divorce. In fact, it, it, Jesus was saying stuff that was was uh, was was beyond the teaching of even the strictest rabbis. And the disciples, you go read Matthew 19, the disciples were like, I mean, who can ever get married if you're not allowed to get out? When Jesus looked at sadness, with sadness at the, uh, the rich young ruler, remember the rich young ruler comes to him and, and says, I'm going to be your follower. And Jesus says, well, you know, that's great, but I need you to let go of all of the stuff that you have. Part with all of your possessions, all of your stuff, all of that money and all that wealth. The guy couldn't do it. He couldn't walk away from it, couldn't hold it loosely. And Jesus was saddened because he said it's really, really hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. And it was a statement that shocked the disciples. They were like, you know, who can, who can actually be saved? So we're not the first generation who find these teachings of Jesus hard. And neither are we the first generation to try and... <laughs> Get around this thing. <laughs> We're not the first to try and soften these commands and backtrack and you know, relax these commands. For many of us, the, these teachings of Jesus are impossible. And so our tendency is to try and make the path easier. The most common approach today for when it comes to the moral vision of Christianity is to, is to, is to try and downplay these teachings of Jesus. I just don't, I'm not going to go there. Or what we do is we try and emphasize his mercy. God's mercy. I'm relying on his mercy. I mean, I mean, surely Jesus realizes that his commands are too difficult. You know, this moral vision of wealth sharing and truth telling and cheek turning and enemy loving and marriage sustaining and kingdom seeking, it's, it's just a bit too much. It would it, be cruel for people to, to, to obey all of these commands. I mean, come on. God knows that we're frail. God knows that we're fallen creatures. We make a mess of things. God knows. And, and, we, and yes, he sets the bar really, really high, but he doesn't expect me to meet the standard, does he? 
Seriously? His job is to forgive me. It's, his job is to overlook my mistakes. When I go to a church, I don't need to listen to the pastor talk about these things. A church needs to be a place where I'm accepted, just as I am. Why are you not loving me? But that's not the vision that God has for us. God, God envisions a future for you and for me of moral majesty. The scripture says he's coming back for a bride, the church. And the Bible's very clear. It says a spotless, unblemished bride. And if we can't hold on to that vision and we're pushing that away, how far have we drifted from God? We believe in the Holy Spirit who enables us to fulfill God's will. And what the Holy Spirit will do is grow us into a people of holy character. The Holy Spirit will do the work of sanctification. We, when we talk about things like purity, when we talk about things like generosity and being honest, it's like, yes, that's exhilarating. That's what I'm going after. And the Holy Spirit will do the work that's necessary if we let him. Following Jesus is, is supposed to be life-changing. It, it's not sin-confirming. It's life-changing. And let me also just tell you this, that God is not laying, he's not wanting to lay a burden of shame on you. He's not wanting to lay a burden of guilt on you when you don't measure up. None of us measure up. And so when we talk about sin in our lives, it's not an accusation. It's not a condemnation. That's not what I'm doing here this morning. When we look at the sin in our lives, God's just going, hey, that's the reality. That's the diagnosis. There is sin in your life. And so the church, is a, the church is a hospital for sinners. That's what it is. Have you ever heard that? The church is a hospital for sinners. But the point of a hospital is for sick people to get well, isn't it? The point of a hospital is so that you can go and get those wounds bandaged up. You can go and get the surgery done, right? The surgery gets performed on you. The, the doctor comes along and gives you prescriptions for your future health. And so the purpose of the church is to introduce the sin sick to the great physician whose blood heals our hearts, the great physician who brings wholeness into our lives if we let him. So yes, the church is a, is a hospital for sinners, but let me also say that the, the church is a school for saints. It's a school for saints. And so it's a place where we experience progress on the journey towards Christ-likeness. And the school is open to anyone who crosses that line of faith. Anyone who crosses that line and says, God, I want to repent of the stuff in my life. I want to turn away from that. I'm putting my trust in you, my faith in you. But I also want to say this this morning. This, the school is not for those who are comfortable in maintaining ignorance. Resisting betterment. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. When he talks about the grace of God appearing, he's talking here about Jesus who came in the form of man, 
who went to a cross, became the ultimate sacrifice, and died for your sin and my sin. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Jesus saves and he instructs. He redeems us from our past and he trains us for the future. And yes, the demands are rigorous. And the demands are rigorous because the goal is magnificent. Christianity shows us an exhilarating vision. There's an exhilarating vision here. The, the picture of the kingdom and following Jesus. Yes, it's rigorous and sometimes it seems unrealistic. Who can ever do it? It's unbending. It's, it's not of this world. And yes, it is otherworldly. But what a reward it will be. What a reward it will be. I spoke last week of two ultimate destinations. Hell and heaven. I know where I want to be. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. You know, the culture of the world in which we live. The culture finds it appealing um, this idea that God doesn't really expect us to obey all of these difficult commands. That's the culture of the world we live in. You're, seriously, God can't expect that of you. you know, um, they find it appealing that Christianity should kind of relax its standards of sexual morality because it's just, it's just impossible to live that way. You know, to reserve sex for um, a man and a woman is, is, is cruel, some would say. How can you say that? You know, we, we, we can't really expect single people not to have sex before marriage, some would say. How can you expect that? We can't, we can't really expect a young couple to live in separate houses before they get married. I mean, heck, why even get married, some say. And so in the name of love, we relax the standards of Jesus. In the name of mercy, we promote mediocrity. In the name of compassion, we settle for compromise. And I just got to ask you this morning, what does that say of our view of God? Can we really expect people to be in awe of a God? When Lindsay came over here this morning and she broke down in tears, I was like, I had to stop singing because I had tears in my eyes because I know what she's talking about. She's encountered God. How can we ever be, be able to tell people about that level of encounter if we've reduced God to nothing more than some kind of grandfather figure sitting up there with a big long gray beard leaning over his walking stick? If that's the picture we have of, of a distant God, a God who's not interested, if, that's the, if, if we've reduced God to someone who, who expects so little of us, winking at our sin, it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible whose glory and holiness fills the narrative. It's a God who in, invites us to live a very different way to the culture that we find ourselves in.
And so we're called to become not merely nice neighbors, not, you know, kind, polite people, but we're called to be holy people who look more and more and more and more like Jesus. Not holier than thou, where you're trying to attain some kind of self-righteous standard or, you know, it's about rule keeping. No, 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 not holier than thou, but holy as he, holy as he, where the life of Jesus is reflected in our daily obedience. Folk, I want to tell you this morning as we wrap up this series, there is no Christian life without putting to death those things that are part of our sinful nature. Everything that belongs to the flesh, we need to put it to death. There is no Christian life without turning away from those, those fleshly lusts, those evil desires. There is no Christian life without taking up your cross daily and dying daily to those things in your life. As we grow in the power of the Spirit who transforms the desires of the flesh to the desires of the kingdom. Christian morality is not, I'm not this is not just, just a set of guidelines, right? It's, not, it's, it's less about guidelines and more about growth. It's about who we are becoming. Who are you becoming? Will you be courageous? Will you strive for purity? Will you be honest no matter what the cost? We don't look to ourselves to do it. We look to the Holy Spirit who's on the inside. The Holy Spirit who will help us be true to Jesus. Christianity says that because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus... And through the power of the Holy Spirit who's given us everything that is required for life and goodness, because of that we can develop into a person who is a new creation. Someone who actually shares in the divine nature of God. That's the way of Christianity. <sighs> no one's left, Greg. Okay. Now if you're like me, when you read this, you're like, whew, yes, you feel exhilarated by this vision. But if you're like me, sometimes you also feel a little bit deflated, right? If you're like me, you, 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 um, you're all too aware of what's in here. You're, you're way too aware of the flaws and, and the failures. And, 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 and you see your struggles and you repeat your stumbles and it's like it feels like you're stumbling forward. If you're like me, you know... Yeah, if the church is a school, you, 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 you think, well, I'm never ever going to pass. You know? <laughs> I'm never going to get through. If you think the church is a hospital, a hospital, you can never really see past your present wounds and, and your injuries. You can't see that vision of, of future health, if you're like me. Well, take heart. It's only going to get worse. You see, the closer you get to Jesus the more you'll realize that your sins keep you from Christ-likeness. The more you grow in holiness, the more you realize how, f how short you fall. I've been a Christian for many, many years now, most of my life. And I've met along the way some beautiful, amazing people, people who I look up to and I know that they love God. And they're for God. And they're faithful Christians. But it's amazing how many of those people will still say to me, Andrew, I've still got so much to learn. Andrew, I've still got so far to go. 
The good news is, is that Christianity, while it sets a standard that seems impossible to achieve, it provides a way of return when we fall. Because the gospel is good news about forgiveness. And so Jesus' righteousness covers our unrighteousness. The standards of Christianity's moral vision are tied to the mercy and the grace of God. And so there's this, there's, there's this radical ideal that is matched with radical mercy. And the thing about God's mercy, let's not misunderstand this. God's mercy does not lower the standard. But neither does God's standard diminish his mercy. The path, the path is one of repentance. A victorious life is not a sinless life. A victorious life is a repentant life. It's where we get back up after we've fallen down and we dust ourselves off and we realign our lives to the vision of Jesus, to the kingdom, right? We understand what Jesus has given us and we say, I'm following you, Jesus, and I dust myself off and I try again. In Proverbs 24, verse 16, the Bible says this. It says, though a righteous person falls seven times, he's going to get back up, but the wicked will stumble into ruin. And so what we find in the words of Jesus, what we find from the apostles and the early church fathers and in the creeds is a call to commit to a way of life that is very unlike the way of life of the culture that we live in. Christianity shows us a God who not only saves sinners, but transforms sinners into saints. He not only justifies us, but he also sanctifies us. Jesus not only died for us, but his spirit lives within us. And yes, I acknowledge the way of Jesus is not easy. And yes, we will stumble. We will fall. But because of both God's call to holiness, as well as God's gift of grace, we keep going. We press on, determined to take hold of, of that which has already taken hold of us. We keep moving forward and we keep repenting of our failures at the same time. The Christian life is a life of repentance and it comes from that word metanoia and it means to change your life. It's not a, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's not like, oh yeah, here I, forgive me for my sins and now I've repented. No, it's a lifetime of repentance. It's a lifetime of turning away from those things that are not of God, that are not of the kingdom. And, and, and focusing on this, this exhilarating vision and going, that's what I want. That's what I'm after. And so the, so the narrow road to future victory really is a pathway of present repentance. The narrow road that Jesus calls us to, the narrow road to future victory is a pathway of present repentance. Can you imagine a, a little baby just at the early stages of starting to walk? I think most of us understand this picture, right? Can you imagine a, um, a mother or a father looking at that little baby who's like trying to get their balance and then saying, don't worry about walking, you're going to fall. Don't worry about walking. You're going to fall. No. What, what loving father or mother does that? A loving parent looks and goes, come on. You can do it. There's a gleam in their eyes. They're like, yes. They're like, come on. They, in anticipation of those first steps. You can do this. You can walk. In the same way, when we look at our heavenly father and, and through the Holy Spirit, we gather up the courage to move forward, to live our lives in accept, 
acceptance and in accordance of his ways. You know, when my son Jude plays soccer on the soccer field, I often say to him, I, I shout from the si- sidelines, it was watching a game yesterday, man, it was physical and there was just yellow cards going everywhere. It was a, it was a really exciting game. But, but whenever Jude gets close to the goal, I'm like, Jude, take a shot, take a shot, take a shot. Come on, I'm shouting from the sideline and, 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 and it doesn't matter. You know, even if, even, if, even if he misses, even if the ball's over the goals or hits the pole or doesn't get anywhere near I'm, I'm excited because he risked it, man. He aimed for that goal and he took the shot. And to me, that's, that's better than being an inattentive dad who kind of stands on the sidelines and never cheers him on to victory. And so, that's the picture of our Heavenly Father when he looks at our lives. Jesus has laid out this vision and he's saying, you can do it. Go for it. I'm going to be there. I'm waiting with expectation to see you walk in this way. The exhilaration of Christianity comes through our natural fallen state being transformed by the Spirit of God. Grace changes. Grace empowers. Grace makes us new. And grace enables us to live a countercultural life. Amen.